Let's open our Bibles um, from the get-go to Genesis chapter 42, and we'll read God's Word as we like to do at the beginning. Um, when you look down at this chapter, I have a benefit with this particular chapter, with the way, at least the way my Bible's laid out. It's like it starts, the very first start of it is over on the top left, and it ends on the bottom right of the next page. So this is one of those rare times I don't have to be flipping pages all over to stay with the chapter. But yours might not work out that way. But lengthwise, this one, uh, this one's not too bad on the number of verses, but when you look down at it, what you do see is some of the verses are longer. But let's get acquainted with the story. Beginning now to read in verse number 1 of Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale uh, in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Let me stop right here and just point out to you. So the chapter begins telling us a little bit about Jacob. It ends the same way. In the middle is when we catch the information about the brothers and Joseph. So here we go. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers, or some versions translate this, he disguised himself. You come out at the same place, it just puts a little different emphasis on it, and spoke roughly to them, where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. So when you, you have that metaphor there, that figure of speech, the nakedness of the land, you think of the idea of something that's naked as something that's vulnerable and unprotected, and that's what he's getting at in that expression. Then they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Is there a little touch of irony in that to you? It's important that you caught that. Some of you caught it before I ever said anything. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Now, do you notice how they're falling all, all over themselves telling him information they really don't have to tell him. But that's important to how it's going to develop. Because Joseph's sitting here evaluating this, and he's having to kind of figure how he's going to go with this. So, Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. Verse 15, By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. Notice the word tested. 
whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. In other words, he put them in the clink. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine and your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your word shall be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. So that particular statement there, and they did so, sort of just pre-anticipates what's going to be, what's going to be happening. Then they said one to another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul. We're catching a little detail and insight here that is not precisely spelled out, but not hard to see back in chapter 37. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, the idea there is begged for mercy, and did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Well, you know what comes or goes around comes around. They put distress on him, and now distress has come to them. God has an interesting way of working and proving that what you sow, you reap. And Reuben answered them, Did I not, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey, this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling one to another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. We said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, son of our father. One is no more. The youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the, the man, the Lord of the land, said to us by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for your families and your households and go your way, bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brothers to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sacks. And the attention is going to shift back now to Jacob at the end. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And notice, and Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands 
and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. So that right there tells you what is meant in that expression, is no more. It meant dead. That was what they were thinking. And he is the only one that is Benjamin left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol or to the grave. Our Father, thank you for your word. These stories are absolutely riveting that you give us. And they are so chock full of spiritual truth and application. Sometimes, Lord, when we look at something like this, that we realize there's so much we could do and we have to choose our focus. I pray you'll bless what you've given me to share with people today. But I know that you are not limited to that. You are able to work in ways above and beyond so that things we, we, we talk about, things that we read, things comments that are made, uh, you're able to apply the word of God to our hearts, to the, to the listener today, my own heart, to each of us exactly where the need exists that you know is there. That's what we're praying for. We want the word of the Lord to be glorified and have free course in our midst. So I pray that you would just use me, Lord. I pray that you would cleanse me of sin. I pray that you would just give me a fresh sense of your presence. Lord, it's apparent to me, as is always true, that this is not something I can do without you. And even if I could just go through a routine, I couldn't accomplish any spiritual good. And that's the desire. So we make our prayer in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. All right, well, we come to Lesson 5. We come to Chapter 42. And last time I said I think we, we breathe a collective sigh of relief when we get to this Chapter 41. And we see some, some indication that this long period of testing, trial, and difficulty in the life of Joseph is coming to an end. Now, in this particular chapter, um, I would use a different word. I would say when you read this, you kind of have a sense of satisfaction. And why I say that is, is because now it's becoming apparent that after all these many years, some of God's purposes, some of his providence, they are beginning to manifest themselves. God's plan is beginning to take hold and to come to pass. And I have to stop, folks, because I want to tell you, I, I, you know, it just kills me sometimes to, you know, there's not enough time. But I, I think about what I just said to you, and I already have something that just literally grips me. And I want to pass it along to you, and that is, I'm thinking about the time that's involved here. When this happens, remember, Joseph went down into Egypt. He was how old? 17. The last chapter told us he was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh. That's 13 years. How much time has gone by between 30 and now? At least seven years, maybe about eight. Why do I say that? Because the seven years of plenty have already happened. That puts Joseph at 37. That means 20 years. All right. For this famine to take hold and for them to exhaust their supplies and whatnot, maybe we say a year. So let's put, I mean, in the next chapter, when Joseph is actually talking to them, two chapters later, he's going to tell them there's a precise time element given to us there when he says there's five more years. I'm thinking if we would put this somewhere around the first year in the famine, when it really begins to take hold and they realize in the land of Canaan they're in bad trouble and they hear that Egypt has food. So let's put 
Joseph at 38. So let's say 21 years have transpired. I just want you to think about this for a minute. You know, when I was in school, we had a fellow who was, at least one time, was, um, was either the president of our society or chaplain. I don't remember which. But he was giving the devotional one time when we had society meeting, and he made a statement, and I wrote that down in my Bible, and I've remembered that ever since. The statement was, and I'm sure it wasn't really original with him, but anyway, it was something like this. God is never in a hurry, but he's always on time. And I'll tell you something, folks. There is a lesson If you didn't get anything else and you just got that right there, you would have gone away with your money's worth for the simple reason that, you know, we have to learn to trust in God's time and to trust in His way and to submit ourselves to Him because if you're like me, I mean, I just, I already know this, I'm type A. And I'm always, I have two speeds, wide open and off. You know, and it, <laughs> now I've gotten a little older and I'm developing another speed just out of necessity. It, it kind of has befallen me. But I it just, we are impatient creatures by nature. And we live in a society that's really pandered that because you have all this, you have instant coffee. It tastes like it's instant too. You know, instant potatoes. We have microwaves. We have all these things. We don't like to wait. But it's sort of an axiom of God's working that time has a way of giving God, put, God putting in our lives what we need to really develop us and grow us. If everything just happened quickly, if you think about how easy spiritual life would be, you'd never have to wait, you'd never have to trust God, you'd never have to be tested, and it doesn't work that way. So let's take a look at this. Now, I mentioned this, and I can only take a few moments, but I've given you a characterization because you could preach sermons on this chapter from any of three perspectives. You could talk about Joseph. If you talked about Joseph, I would suggest that where we see him is not in his, he's not at his best in this story. He's, he's kind of, ever since the thing with, with Joseph, he really has apparently never totally recovered from that, and that happens a lot in life. I do think he's gotten suspicious. I do think the way this chapter opens, when he won't let Benjamin... Well, so you think to yourself, okay, he wouldn't let Benjamin go down, and later Reuben refers to him as a lad. How old is he? Well, all right, let me tell you this. Joseph was about six years old when they moved from Paden Aram. His mother gave birth to... Benjamin along the way, remember this? And she died in childbirth. So that puts Benjamin at roughly six years younger than Joseph. If Joseph is 38, Benjamin is 32. You with me? Does this make sense to you? He's not like 16. He's a grown man. And we really don't know a lot of details about his life at this point, but I mean... I think that Joseph is suspicious. Just think about it this way. All this time has gone by, these 21 years, and there has been no other fact, no other piece of evidence, no information that's come to light concerning Joseph.
And I have to be honest with you, you know, we, we have a way of thinking of the 12 patriarchs and we kind of glorify that concept, but you know what? In the story and in the record that we have of them, these guys were tough customers. They weren't too, they weren't too impressive spiritually in a lot of the scenes that we see them in. So I think he's gotten suspicious, but he's gripped with this self-pity. The brothers become gripped with guilt, which they richly deserve. But see, for Joseph, to say, I have to wrestle with all this because this story or this class is on the life of Joseph, so I've opted to stick to Joseph, but I'll, I'll give you some things along the way to think about. I think that this encounter that we have here is tremendously promising to him. Why do I say that? I mean, it had to really mean something to him after all this time when these brothers come waltzing in there and he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. That makes a lot of sense because he was speaking to them in Egyptian, which obviously he'd learned over all this time, probably learned that fairly early. Learn languages when you're young. It comes a lot quicker. And I suspect he did that probably in those early years. And he, and he was sitting there. He was, he's an Egyptian official, obviously, and so he's, he's dressed like he probably doesn't. Remember the detail that when he went before Pharaoh, he shaved? That was the custom of the Egyptians, so he may not have had the typical Hebrew beard that these guys probably had. Who knows? But he looked different. He looked like an Egyptian, and he made some effort not to reveal himself to them. So these guys come waltzing in there, and they know they're looking for a favor. They bow themselves down to him. Well, what are you going to first He remembered the dreams. It says that. He remembered the dreams. Ah, so what God told you 21 years before, God hasn't forgotten. And Joseph has never given up. That's, that's just the thing about him. It's, a, it's amazing. So I, he sees that, verse number 6, and then he sees as this thing goes along, remember it tells us that they, they're talking to each other. They're having a little sidebar conference. They don't realize it's a hot mic. They don't realize he can understand everything they're saying. I laugh every time I read this because... My dad was a businessman and shrewd. I don't mean that in the shifty sense. I just mean that he was perceptive and smart in dealings with people. And one of the things that he was involved with towards the end part of his career was he was in New Ventures, which meant that he went out and found and researched companies that his company might be interested in buying. And I won't mention it because I don't want anybody to take this comment as a, as a negative thing, but there's a certain foreign country that he was visiting with, with respect to an acquisition. And he knew that they typically pulled that technique. In other words, you'd be in there with your couple three guys, and they'd be in there with their couple three guys, and they'd have an interpreter, but they understood English. And the whole thing was they were hoping for you to kind of lean over and say to your partner, something that would reveal them insight into the negotiations where they realize, okay, here's where he'll, here's where he'll say yes or whatever. That's kind of what's going on here, but when he overhears this, what's he overhear? Well, they're basically confessing. Verse number 21, in truth we are guilty. That's got to be intensely meaningful to him. In fact, so meaningful that it produces tears, and he has to excuse himself briefly, then he comes back. So there are lessons from each of these. We're going to look at Joseph, though, and spend a lot of time with this introduction. But um, what I want to talk about is dealing with broken or challenging or difficult relationships. 
because a lot of people have said a lot of things about how Joseph handles this. So I think the challenge for you and me is not necessarily to approach Scripture and to a character in the Bible like Joseph that they can do no wrong, but at the same point, try to put yourself in Joseph's position. What kind of relationships does he have at this point with his brothers? If I were going to use a word, I would say broken. Would you agree they have sinned against him? Would you agree with that? Okay, this is not really a gray area. This is not a he said, she said, or Joseph did this wrong or that wrong, and they did this right. It's kind of like shared guilt. No, they were clearly in the wrong, and the relationship was broken. And sometimes we have that. I mean, sometimes we have those situations, or other times it may not be that extreme. It may just be that the person we, we kind of characterize as prickly, a prickly person. I, <laughs> I like that expression. I use it again towards the end. So let's take a look at this. I think that I want to show you three pictures of Joseph and how he chooses to handle this situation. Because how do you respond in situations when you have a broken relationship and it's, it's clear, at least to you, that the other person is, they're the sinning party. They're the offending party. But yet, at the same point, think about this. He has this yearning. He has this desire to be reconciled to them, to be reunited to them. What is going to have to happen for that to really work? That's a big question for us to ask because here's the thing. I'm trying to set the stage for this. We get under a lot of pressure with these things, and our emotions begin to overwhelm us. And sometimes they cloud our thinking to the point that we've got to keep those things balanced with scriptural principles for how you handle this, and that's what I'm interested in here. You have a broken relationship. The brothers are the guilty and sinning party. How does Joseph respond to this? What can you and I learn? That's what I'm after. So the three pictures of Joseph, first of all, what I would call a firm Joseph, and the reason that I describe him this way is because you'd be surprised at how many people accuse Joseph in his initial dealings with his brothers when they come in there. They accuse him of being harsh, and what he does is, is unnecessary. Now, was he harsh? Well, it, I mean, it, in, in his verbal tone, it came across that way. Look at these verses. He treated them as strangers, so he concealed his identity. That much is true. He didn't reveal himself. I think he would have been wrong to, frankly, and I'll get to that, explain that in a minute. But it, it does say he spoke harshly to them. So look at verses 6 through 8. Um, it says here, uh, I want the word rough. The ESV uses the word rough. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Yeah, here it is in verse 7. Spoke roughly to them. And I think you might, you might have a word that, that we use a little more commonly. Might be a slightly better translation of this. He spoke harshly to them. Now, that, that made a big impression on them because later when they go back and they're telling their father about this, they use the same, they quote that, they say that. Look at verse 30. The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us. It means he spoke abruptly. It means he spoke somewhat harshly to them. But it was for a purpose, okay? Now, the other thing that people bring up is they say, well, why did he have to accuse them of being spies? And then he puts them in, on, in jail for three days. Well, <laughs> There is a slight a bit of poetic justice to that, wouldn't you think? 
I'm not saying that Joseph was indulging in that, but they put him down in a pit. It's always nice to have the shoe on the other foot and see how that's going to work out, but it, I, this is free-flowing, folks. You have to realize this. He, I think that you have every reason to believe and expect that Joseph realizes, believes that one day he's going to see those guys. That famine is the instrument of God's... God is going to use that famine to bring them to him. We've talked about that. So I'm sure he's thought about how he's going to conduct himself when that first occasion comes. But he doesn't know what they're going to say to him. So in that sense, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a little bit free-flowing. Here's my point. Instead of us taking the, the, the tact, as some people do, that he was harsh and unnecessary in his dealings, I think you look at it from the other perspective. What would the opposite to that have been? The opposite to that would have been to just, oh, I am so glad you're here. You can't imagine how long I've anticipated this moment, and I'm so glad to see you. But you know what? There's a broken relationship there. And that has to be dealt with one way or another, and it isn't easy. I'm not I'm preaching to the choir here. I know, I know you understand, but this is difficult sometimes to keep our emotions under control. I think that would have been a weak thing for him to do without first having some way to assess exactly where are they. Because are they ready to repent of the sin or are they just ready to repent of the consequences? There's a big difference between those two things. One's a solid foundation, the other is not. So he devises a test as this thing progresses. He accuses them of being spies, but they're the ones who claim to be honest men. And like I said a minute ago, it's almost like they spill their guts. Did you ever notice that guilty people have a way of doing that? They have a way of just kind of blabbering. And if you listen to the details, sooner or later, they've said more than they needed to. So, oh, no, no we're, no, we're not spies. No, 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 we've never been spies. We're honest men. Hey, we're 12 brothers. That's interesting to say. We're 12 brothers, the son of one father, and one is not. In other words, the one we did in. One is not. And the other is this day with his father in Canaan. Well, he just gave them all kinds of ways to go with this thing. They just gave him. I mean, they could have just said, no, no, we're, we're, look, we're from the land of Canaan. We're all brothers. He doesn't have to tell, but they do. They spill their guts with all that. So I think another thing that, that as you appraise Joseph's conduct in all of this, you have to realize, too, he makes a statement that's, that's really not just a, a standalone statement. It's, this is really true of Joseph's entire life, and I, I don't have time to develop it all for you this morning, but when he comes out on the third day, he's had a little more time to think about this now, and he's because this, as I say, this is free-flowing. And I think as he's thought about this now, he refines his own plan. Okay, no, I'm going to let you guys go. You take the food back to your family. I'm going to put one of you here on ice. But what does he tell them? He tells them, for I fear God. Well, that's an understatement. That's modest. That's very modest, but it's really true. And, and I think what it does is, folks, it brings us back to realize, if you look at the, the life of Joseph as a whole, he has a, th this is a dynamic that's always operating for him. He, he is in such close contact with God that I think we, we absolutely cannot dismiss the, the likelihood not just the possibility, more like the probability 
that he'd thought about this long before they got there. He had no way of knowing what they would say or how, how he would exactly have to respond, but he had probably a general direction that he wanted to take based on his impressions of them. And when his impressions of them verified that they needed further testing, but he says, I fear God. And here's my point to leave with you, and we have to hasten. I apologize, we don't have more time. But without true repentance, any renewed relationship is going to be on shaky ground. So for him to have, have, have called it off at this point and revealed himself and just acted like now everything's normal, no, everything wasn't normal because things hadn't really been made right. And we have some verses that help us with this. I mean, Luke 17.3 is, is a New Testament principle. It's on the lips of Jesus. But you find this in the Old Testament as well. Look at Proverbs 28.13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. By the way, in the early part of the chapter, I meant to say this then. The first thing Joseph says to these guys is, what are you looking at yourselves for? In other words, why are you hesitating? There's grain in Egypt. Get on down there. Well, I think there's a reason why they were hesitating. I think that Egypt brought up bad, bad vibes for them because that's where they sold Joseph. And how did they know if they went down into Egypt that they wouldn't somehow come into contact with him one way or another? So I think it held some fear. I think they were very reticent. Jo uh, Jacob is the one who has to kind of take action as the patriarch in the family. But if you cover your sins, you don't prosper. But if you confess and forsake them, you obtain mercy. Look at this that Jesus says to us. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, you have to be willing always to forgive people from your heart. You don't get to withhold that and hide behind the excuse, well, they haven't formally made it right yet. Do you follow the difference in what I'm saying? You can have a situation where the relationship is still broken, but you cannot have a situation in which you are unwilling and have not granted in your heart forgiveness to the person even if you haven't granted it formally even if the relationship has not been totally restored you don't get to go around with an unforgiving spirit i don't either and that has an incredibly harmful spiritual effects on the person who does that so when jesus says this here this is what he's talking about formal Reconciliation occurs when the other person acknowledges the wrong that they've done and you then forgive them. You then say, I accept your apology or whatever term you use. So let's just back up. Here's our takeaway point. Without true repentance, any renewed relationship will be on shaky ground. Um, there's another verse in Proverbs that, let me share, I didn't give it to you, but um, I think these verses come to into, into play as well to give some guidance to us. It's in the 27th chapter of Proverbs. Um, early in the chapter, the verses say this in verse number 5, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So I think Joseph is doing right by his brothers in the truest sense. I think it would have been an emotional capitulation and not a reflection of really tough love, true, true biblical love, had he not seen this thing through because it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't ready yet. Go to the next picture that we see of jo Joseph. 
So again, see, these people that make these claims that Joseph was harsh and unreasonable and unkind and it, this is all unnecessary, I think, you, again, you're missing something else in the chapter because we also see the picture of a tender Joseph. When he overhears them in verse 21, talking about their guilt, he comes out, he offers this compromise, and then he overhears them talking about their guilt, and he weeps to the point that he has to excuse himself. And so at the first sign of genuine remorse, he's incredibly grateful, and he does grant some mercy to them in allowing them to return to Canaan with the food which they needed for their households. And here's the takeaway here. Balancing truth and love in our dealings with others is essential. This is a, a Pauline articulation of this, rather speaking the truth in love. What a great phrase that is. So, so what happens if you have all truth and no love? Then you, you really do have harshness. If you have all love and no truth, you have weakness. Right? And when you're dealing with these tough cookies like these guys, probably some of you are thinking some tough cookies on your prickly person list. When you're dealing with these situations, you, either extreme, and it's, it's, it's a problem. It's, it's not going to go the way you really want it to go. Um, so uh, I, I think we have to take that in, into consideration as well. Let's look at the last thing, because we have a committed Joseph. So what do I mean by this? Well, he's put 21 years into this thing at this point. And now he sees it through, even though it means he has to sort of... I mean, here's the temptation. What you want is right there within your, your grasp. You can see your brothers, but it's not ready yet. He knows it's not ready yet. Will he have the faith and tenacity to cling to his spiritual principles and continue to trust God and be willing to let them go. This is hard, folks. Let them go. He hadn't seen them in 21 years. He's going to let them go. And before we talk about any of the other sub-points, let me just say this. Um, have you been tested at times in your life? I bet you have with situations and you just have to say, you know what, God is in your hands and you just have to give it there and leave it there. You've done what you can do. God has to work in the heart. Can you trust him enough to give him a little more time to bring his purposes to fruition or you'll go get in there and monkey around? And usually when we do that, we mess the whole thing up. So Here's the point, the real proof of the brother's sincerity. In other words, what he hears is a good first, a good down payment. But how far does it really go? Does it go deep? Is it in the heart? Or is it just sort of, oh boy, we're in trouble now. We probably deserve it. And it's more on the level, the surface level of sorrow over the consequences rather than the deed itself. The real proof is going to be whether they show back up and they return with Benjamin to fetch Simeon. So he keeps Simeon. Now, let me ask you a question. Did, did you ever read this and um, ask yourself the question, 
Why did Joseph choose Simeon? Um, I'm looking for the verse. It says that. I've got to grab the exact. Yeah, verse 24. And he took Simeon. So he proposes this idea, going to leave one. The rest of you go back with the food. They don't get to choose which one. He does. He keeps Simeon. Any ideas? Know anything else about Simeon? Sir? He tried to protect Joseph. Now, that was Reuben. That was Reuben. Okay, let, let, let's, let's, let's indulge ourselves for a minute. This, there's a little speculation in this, okay? But we might be on to an idea. Let's go back to chapter 34. It'll, it'll have to remain speculation, but this is kind of interesting. This is the story of what happens when they're coming back to the land and they get into that problem at Shechem. Do you remember that? And Dinah, Joseph's, uh, Jacob's daughter, the one daughter that we know of, she goes out to see the daughters of the land, and what happens? She gets in trouble, and she ends up being raped by this uh, young man who lived in that city. And two brothers devise a scheme. The scheme involves deceit, and the scheme involves cruelty. What deceit did it involve? Do you remember the story? What was the deceit? Oh, we'll be happy to give you our sister in marriage, but we have this requirement. You with me? What was it? I had to circumcise all the males. Well, so they persuaded everybody. It had been a hard sell, but <laughs> they persuaded everybody, and everybody goes along with it. And then they wait for the three days where these guys aren't really in a position to fight after that procedure. And they come in there, and who leads this whole thing? Whose scheme is this, and who leads the whole thing? Chapter 34, verse 25, on the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi. Simeon's name is first. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt, while it, it felt secure and killed all the males. All right, let's flip forward to chapter 49. This is a lifelong thing. Jacob is not happy with what they did. He says that now he's, he's going to be made to stink in the eyes of the people of the land. And when jo Jacob, from his deathbed, is giving his prognostication about his sons, he provides insight into, the, into every one of them tells a little something about what's going to play out in the future. And look at verse 5. Here's what he says. Simeon, that name. See, Simeon is the oldest after Reuben. And Reuben blew it already, right? And lost the, the lead role of being the firstborn. So Simeon is next. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed a man, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Now watch this. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. 
I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. It really is true what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. So in this plan to put Joseph down in the pit, it just makes me wonder, since Simeon was so cruel, and since Reuben, the oldest son, was against the plan to kill him, it just makes me wonder if Simeon was not sort of in a lead role in this, cruel, hard-hearted. It's just interesting. He's the one who's selected. Can't prove anything. Just interesting. So Joseph sets the stage. This is where he has to be willing to let them go. He gives his stewards instruction, put their money back in their sacks. We'll send them on their way. I bet that steward was kind of thinking, that's weird. Put money back in their sacks. But later when they come back the second time, it's like the steward kind of knows. He knows the plan. So he puts the money in the sacks, and chapter 43, 23 is that verse. The steward does all this at Joseph's instructions, and he packs them up and sends them off. And it's kind of like, um, you know, where somebody says, mission accomplished. But you, can't you can't really hang any mission accomplished over this door yet because it's not totally accomplished. And he knows it's not totally accomplished. It's started. But more work has to be done, and he has to let God bring this thing to fruition. And I'm saying to you and me, folks, when we find ourselves in that situation, in these types of situations and others, you have to keep the focus on the goal, which is full and complete restoration, and it often takes a lot of faith and a lot of steadfastness and a lot of trust in God, and you can't do wrong yourself. You have to put yourself in a position that God can bless you. So I don't mean at all to give the impression this morning that these three pictures that we see of Joseph, the firm, um, tender and committed Joseph. That's not a whole theology of dealing with prickly people. <laughs> There's a good bit more that you can talk about there. But I do think that it does reveal some mistakes that we tend to make at times of emotional weakness. Or You know, you can have two extremes. You can either be vindictive or you can be soft. And neither really produces the kind of fruit that you're after. And Joseph is not vindictive and neither is he soft though he is tender. So the story does reveal mistakes to avoid and examples to, f to follow. And I think probably where I would like to end with this today is just to say, I, I don't think we can discount the fact that, that, that Joseph has such a close dynamic walk with God that God is leading him and God is blessing him. One thing we know for sure is God is blessing. Because when we get to the next, there's going to be, by the way, three encounters with these brothers. And I haven't quite decided how I'm going to handle two and three. Um, next week's chapter is the story of number two. And number three follows right on its heel because they don't even get back home. If you remember that part, chapter 44 is the third encounter. And that's the one where it all climaxes. Okay, so we could have talked about J Jacob. We could have talked about, you know, I've, I have another message on this that, where I, I spend my time talking about the brothers and be talking about the fact, be sure your sin will find you out. <laughs>
But our story's on Joseph today, so hopefully there was something here that was helpful to you today. Father, bless us now as we prepare our hearts for the next service. Help our pastor as he leads us in worship. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity here to observe the Lord's table today. We don't want to go through this as a routine. We want right now that you begin to prepare our hearts to help us to have gratitude and to be reminded of Jesus' death till he comes and to be a little bit more enriched with our thoughts of Christ as a result of the service today. So we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.